3: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we're joined by Deborah Richardson, the executive director of the International Human Trafficking Institute.
4: Atlanta has the highest underground commercial sex industry. It's like a $290 million dollar a year business, and $33,000 a week is the average income of one trafficker.
3: Here's the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Now, my message for this week is we think about closing out this year, transitioning to the new year is like remember why you got started in the work you do in the first place and like revisit that so the reason i got started in this work is because i think we can win like i fundamentally believe it it's what made me quit my job it's what made me drive to ferguson in the first place it's what has kept me in this work it's like this belief that we can win and the reason that i have to check in with that is because there's often a temptation to move you from the why there's a temptation to be seen and heard There's a temptation to like want money. There's a temptation to want all these things that are different than like what called you to the work in the first place. And If you answer to and respond to the thing that called you in the first place, you'll see that the decisions you make are very different. So I've had to check in with myself and ask myself in all the hard moments like, why do I still do this work and what called me in the first place? And what called me was this deep belief that we can win. Let's go.
5: Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett, at Miss Pack Yeti, on all social media.
2: And this is Sam Sinyangwe, at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith, at Clint Smith
3: III. Aye, aye, aye. This is Duray at D R E Y on Twitter.
5: Can we talk about y'all's homeboy, Offset, interrupting Cardi Set to beg her to come back? At the Rolling Loud Festival this weekend, she was the first woman ever to headline. And here comes Offset. Take me back, Cardi. Let me let me take the shine. Let me take your moment in the sun, and make it all about me. You can probably already tell how I feel about it.
6: <laughs> what's interesting is that it's clearly trash. It's terrible. You know, this person showing up to a woman's workplace is what it is. Uh, interrupting her her professional life for something that's incredibly selfish. But but what's interesting to think about is that how culturally inundated we've been with this sort of public gesturing a long time now. I mean, I can think of romantic comedies that I've watched in which like the man did something wrong. And then in the last five minutes of the movie, he like shows up to the woman while she's making a presentation in the conference room and he stands on the table and it's holding flowers and people start to clap and her friends are like, you got to take him back. And so we've been conditioned for a long time to think that this is a, like a positive thing rather than like an incredibly invasive thing, rather than what can often be an incredibly dangerous thing, as we've seen even in recent weeks, uh, men showing up to a woman's workplace and, and then having deadly consequences. And so I think, you know, a lot of what's been happening over the past year or so is a lot of unlearning, very public unlearning of patriarchal and misogynistic things that they were never okay, but they we were once made to feel as if they were okay. And thankfully, people are, are beginning to reassess that. It is interesting, uh, to
3: to that the internet very quickly, like, called his actions into question that like one of the things that just didn't exist 10, 15 years ago during all those rom-coms was like a public conversation about what was happening in real time. And like, you see it now, you know, I saw somebody else, write Like, well, you know, my, our grandparents like stayed in relationships and, you know, my grandmother stayed when my grandfather cheated. And like very quickly, somebody was like, a lot of relationships were like rooted in abuse. Like just because people stayed didn't mean that it wasn't abusive, wasn't manipulative like, wasn't damaging. And, like, I saw that response happen so quickly that called into question things that previously, like, had just gone unchallenged, which I think is really both interesting and powerful.
2: And, I mean, because they both lead very public lives, I mean, there was sort of a, a paper trail there. This wasn't the first time that Offset, you know, had been involved in this behavior. Um, and so we could see, you know, how that Offset and Cardi had previously dealt with uh, Offset's infidelity in the past and, and, you know, new allegations came out, a new incident arose. And so, you know, this is something where, you know, people are not only sort of just responding to this event, which Offset was trash in, but also recognizing that this is something that has become sort of more of a repeat issue. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's important that they call Offset out on that and that we all call it Offset out and do it in a way that, you know, I think can hopefully contribute to learning and growth rather than sort of just, you know, canceling him. Because I think at the end of the day, he is sort of the the father of Cardi B's child. And and I think Cardi B then posted a a video afterwards, you know, recognizing that and saying that she wants Offset to grow into that role, but doesn't want to do that in the context of, you know, having to constantly be with him despite that sort of repeated abuse. So I'm hopeful that that he'll continue to grow and that we won't see more of this to come.
5: I'm really glad that this is the conversation surrounding this because, Clint, your point is absolutely right. The public conversation around these kind of very public romantic gestures, especially when a party has wronged the other party, in particular a man has wronged the woman, um, that these were not only supposed to be acceptable, but desired, right? That you were supposed to somehow aspire to men crawling back in that kind of way, which then means that a lot of young women in particular, but young people altogether, were not questioning why... We were actually low key being encouraged to stay in these overly dramatic, very counterproductive and codependent dysfunctional relationships where people had to do a lot of crawling back in the first place. And I will say I've been thinking a lot about the influence that Cardi and Offset and their relationship has on young people and what they assume to be healthy relationship behavior and what is not. I remember being in college and I was an RA in a freshman dorm, which meant that when my now ex-boyfriend who had cheated on me a number of times put up, I'm sorry. And I love you signs, like literal signs all over my dorm. That was also my workplace. Like that was how I was paying for my room and board. And so my colleagues, my boss, they all saw these plastered all over my dorm. And I remember at the time Lots of people around me, women and men, thinking, well, this is so romantic. You should give him another chance, at least hear him out. And I felt too ashamed to say that actually I was really embarrassed and I was really annoyed by it. Um, And I found it very frustrating that he felt like he could just take up space like that when I told him very clearly when and where we could talk about these things. And I ended up going back to him. I very much felt the public pressure to do so. And he kept on cheating and it kept being a very dysfunctional and psychologically harmful relationship until I finally broke it off. I hope that to your point, Sam, that not only do Offset and Cardi learn from this, Offset primarily, but that the people watching, especially folks at whatever age you are, that need to learn better, more healthy relationship habits, that this will be a public conversation that helps you do that.
3: I can only imagine, like, how hard this is for Cardi to not only live a public life, but to see people weigh in so publicly as well. So, like, to see all the celebrities who have used their platforms to say that Cardi should get back with it, like, that to me has been fascinating to watch. Like, all these people who are like, you should take him back today. And you're like, really? Like, ah, uh... like that, I can only imagine how hard that is for her, let alone, like, Him coming up on the stage with those, like, signs, it was like, that was just a whole lot. And her face, you know, Cardi can't really act her emotions. And, like, her face was like, she was like, yeah, not this, not this.
5: All right. And now for the news. So I want to talk a little bit about a place called Wellston, Missouri. So 22 years ago, uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, seized control of Wellston Public Housing. What that essentially meant was that the local housing authority was placed under federal control. So staffing, funding, etc. was coming from a federal place. It was because the federal government pledged to turn around and stabilize public housing in the area and then to return the local housing authority to local jurisdiction. Community reinvestment and stability of institutions never actually happened. So it's now 22 years later and the housing authority in Wellston is essentially flat broke, even though they remain under federal control. Which means that 400 residents, that's one-fifth of all of the residents in Wellston, 400 residents who live in public housing are now being pushed out and have to find new places to live because the local housing authority will be completely shut down on January 1st, 2019. Suffice it to say that the federal government did not fulfill its duty to the people of Wellston, and this is not an anomaly. We've seen under Ben Carson's leadership as the secretary of HUD that they've been moving away from public housing toward public and private partnerships – HUD also has told communities that are qualified for improvements and fixes under the Obama administration that in order to pay for those fixes, they should go out and look for private funding. You also have to consider the fact that a lot of smaller cities and rural areas weren't even eligible for that additional funding in the first place. This also comes alongside the news that a thousand families living in HUD housing have failed health and safety inspections or their homes have failed health and safety inspections since this administration has taken over in the last two years. Uh, and that number of violations continues to be on the rise. This has happened alongside the fact that there have been massive staffing scalebacks and a 25% drop in HUD enforcements uh, coming from that particular office during, again, the last two years. This all, of course, stands in great irony to the fact that the unduly elected president of the United States, Donald Trump, made his fortune in real estate. He had gleaming hotels with gilded lobbies and sprawling golf courses. Of course, we know that the FBI also has 400 pages of investigative notes accounting to the racial discrimination at Donald Trump's housing complexes. So this just remains another frustrating example of Trump and his crew being exactly who they've always said they were and exactly who they've always been. And we are now seeing so many more people suffering unnecessarily for it in the most cruel ways.
2: This is one of a number of actions uh, that have been taken that have made it harder for people of color to access uh, housing. And one of those actions that actually just got reported uh, this past week was an effort by the Trump administration to prevent people who are currently on DACA uh, from being able to access uh, FHA home loans uh, from the federal government. So I, we've talked in the past about. Uh, The role that the federal government uh, has played in redlining, particularly black communities, and making it very, very hard for people to buy homes, uh, to access home loans, particularly in areas that were sort of whiter areas, uh, higher income areas, uh, that contributed to uh, the neighborhood level segregation that we continue to see today. Well, they're using the same tactic against immigrants who qualify for DACA by creating an unofficial policy that apparently has been sent to a variety of lenders across the country, instructing them not to offer home loans, uh, reduced-rate home loans, to undocumented folks on DACA. So this is just another example of how the Trump administration is making it harder for folks to access housing, uh, particularly for immigrants, uh, and using a, a tactic that has been used in the past under the era of Jim Crow. And
6: Brittany, you alluded to this in your sort of breakdown of the news, but uh, I just want to bring some a little bit more specificity to a really important point you made, and that's an NBC News investigation found that more than 1,000 of HUD's nearly 28,000 federally subsidized multifamily housing properties failed their most recent inspection. And that is a failure rate that is more than 30% higher than it was in 2016, according to an analysis of HUD records. And I think it's really important for people to remember what's behind those numbers, right, that it's mold that's in apartments that can trigger young people's asthma that can uh, make it so that young people with certain allergic reactions uh, might have potentially fatal reactions to that. It can be uh, the fact that there is a gas leak um, that is sort of slowly poisoning the people inside of it. It can be the fact that there are pieces of the building that are that are physically decrepit and physically falling apart, and uh, that might hurt a child or, or even an adult who's, who's spending time uh, living in, in that sort of place. So I think it's just really, you know, when we hear these numbers, it, I think it's helpful for people just to consider what it would mean for you to have asbestos or for you to have parts of your home falling apart or for you to have these things that are dangerous in your home. And then on top of that, to have no one coming in a timely manner to fix those things when it is their responsibility to do so.
3: This to me was a reminder of how the administrative part of the government actually really matters and i think about when i was uh, the chief of human capital and school system in baltimore like i'd be in some rooms both in the district and across the country talking about education and be like wow like you know a lot of people like funding is huge like we don't fund public schools equitably Teacher quality is really big. Everybody's talking about teacher quality, principals, all that stuff, but like nobody's talking about the people who like set policy and sit in these meetings at the administrative level. And like until that changes, like none of the other stuff will be able to make as big of an impact as we want it to. And like this, when we think about repairs and we think about like all these things that are are fundamentally like matters of administration, like you realize the danger of having somebody like Ben Carson, who literally has no experience in government, no experience in housing. Like when you think about uh, Steve Mnuchin, the secretary of the treasury, you think about uh, DeVos who like, you know, clearly had never worked in public service and had not done much with public, edu- with traditional public education at all. Uh, you think about Rick Perry, who like didn't even know what department he was going to run. You know, he wanted to dismantle energy, and then he thought that energy was like he just had no clue. You know, and this is a, a trend in this administration. Uh, but it's not just this administration. There are A lot of places across the country, where the administrative folks are people that don't know what they're doing. So when I think about like some of the listeners on this pod you probably really talented and like have never thought about like working on the administrative side of the agencies that you fight all the time. And like, you'd be shocked at how much impact you can make.
2: So my news is about Florida, the good old state of Florida, where the Florida state Supreme court just ruled that police officers can use the stand your ground law to claim immunity after they have shot and killed somebody. So in 2013, Jermaine McBean, a black man, was killed by the police in Broward County, and he was in a situation of mental uh, health distress. Uh, He was walking around with a toy gun, uh, and he had headphones in, and three officers came up on him. They shouted at him. Uh, he couldn't hear them because he had his headphones in. Uh, and then one of the officers claimed that he pointed a gun at, at the officer and shot him dead. Since then, witness testimony has conflicted with that. Witnesses say that he never pointed a gun at anybody. Witnesses say that he never heard any of the warnings. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, prosecutors were able to charge that officer uh, with manslaughter. And this this was the first case in decades where a police officer was charged for shooting and killing somebody in Florida. Uh, And just for some context, Florida has one of the highest rates of police violence in the nation, so the state has a similar size population as New York State, uh, but three times as many people are killed by police in Florida as in New York, just to give you some sense of the severity of police violence in the state of Florida. And this case, what's interesting about it is that after the police officer was charged, uh, his defense attorneys essentially said that he should be able to claim immunity under the state's stand-your-ground law. Uh, and what that allows you to do is to go in front of a judge instead of a jury, uh, and if the judge agrees that you have immunity, then that's it. You, you're immune from prosecution, uh, and you are not able to be held accountable uh, on the decision of that one judge. Uh, And so this case, the prosecutors actually appealed that ruling by that judge and said that the police officer is subject to a different set of rules, specifically the police deadly force standard uh, and not subject to the stand your ground law, which is sort of like the civilian deadly force standard. And this past week, the Florida Supreme Court ruled that, in fact, police officers are also able to claim immunity under stand your ground laws like other civilians are. Uh, And as a consequence, that case Uh, the officer is now immune from prosecution where Previously, he had been charged and could have been prosecuted. Uh, So this is interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, First and foremost, uh, there are 26 states with stand-your-ground laws. Uh, And so while this just applies to Florida, it is dangerous in the sense that if this spreads to other states with similar laws in place, uh, it will provide another layer of protection uh, for police uh, who shoot people uh, or otherwise use deadly force while on duty. Uh, And it's also interesting in the sense that this is now leading to uh, a relitigation of other cases.
5: And I just want to note, Sam, that this is especially interesting for um Perhaps interesting is not the word, but it's curious given what we discussed last week and how when women, black women in particular, have stood their ground, people like Marissa Alexander and Santoya Brown, not only have they not been protected under similar laws, they have found themselves in jail when uh, trying to defend themselves under absolutely heinous circumstances. So once again, we see not only is there um, an unequal application of the law across citizens, there's also... So an unequal application of the law between citizens and police officers. Um, Someone tweeted this week a thread on why police officers, particularly conservative police officers, weren't speaking out about the criminal behavior of this administration or things that were happening at the level of state and federal governments. And this, of course, provides you an answer because why would you bite the hand that feeds you? Why would you call out the very systems and structures that are providing you permission to behave badly in so many ways?
6: I think it's really important that people understand the impact that a law like this has on the thing that it is supposed to end up preventing. So there was a 2017 study that showed that the implementation of Florida Stand-Your-Ground Self-Defense Law was associated with a significant increase in homicides and homicides by firearms. So so the pretense of the law is that it is supposed to serve as a deterrent uh, ostensibly to violent crime by people thinking that, like, oh, well, I'm not going to you know, violently attack someone if they have a lot of flexibility Uh, around notions of like what constitutes self-defense by the law, but that has clearly not been the case and uh, violent crime and specifically homicides uh, have gone up since the implementation of a rule that is supposed to do the opposite. So I think that even, you know, intuitively it doesn't make sense, empirically it doesn't make sense and the fact that Florida's uh, legislature is is simply doubling down on on a dangerous and ineffective law is uh, more than concerning. So I just want
3: to read what the, what the judge wrote in the, in the decision in granting stand-your-ground protections to police officers. What he says is, simply put, a law enforcement officer is a person, whether on duty or off, and irrespective of whether the officer is making an arrest. In common understanding, person refers to a human being, which is not occupation-specific and plainly includes human beings serving as law enforcement officers. I had to like read that a million times because in one fell swoop, he's sort of like, you know what? Power dynamic doesn't matter. Like the fact that like they can do things that no other private citizen can do, like, doesn't matter. He's just like the law says people and, and, it, and it applies to people. The other thing is that the true danger of this is that Uh, The legal analysts who believe that the ruling will now allow police officers to avoid jury trials completely. So like, they'll be able to invoke standard ground. If it meets a bar, like they won't, there won't even be a trial, like a jury trial at all They'll just go before a judge. And like, that is wild. The thought that like police can force you to stop, they can detain you. Like they can do all these things that nobody else can do. And then literally if they kill you, they can just say they were afraid. And that would just be covered under this law is pretty shocking. I'm hopeful that Uh, It'll be appealed, certainly hopeful that this won't uh, spread, and I'm even more hopeful that we'll figure out how to organize to end the stand-your-ground laws in general.
2: And speaking to that, just one last piece around the stand-your-ground law in Florida, the state legislature is actually doubling down, as you said, Clint, on that law. Uh, This past session, they actually passed a law strengthening the state stand-your-ground law, shifting the burden of proof so that now... The prosecute has to prove with clear and convincing evidence now that uh, the person who shot the other person didn't fear for their life and didn't act in self-defense, which makes it all the more difficult uh, to prosecute now, in this case, both police officers and civilians both.
3: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come.
1: Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling.
0: For the love of home.
6: So for my news, there's been a a pretty great series happening at ProPublica about the gutting of the IRS and how over the past decade, people living in poverty have disproportionately and unfairly been subjected to audits as compared to their wealthier counterparts. So for some context, the cuts the IRS has experienced over the past Several years have been depleting staff members who historically, and and their job is to help ensure that taxpayers pay what they owe. Uh, As of last year, the IRS had 9,510 auditors, and that is down uh, a third from 2010. And even more concerning, next year, almost a third of the remaining employees will be eligible to retire, and the budgets are continuing to shrink. Uh, Many of them will, as their retirement becomes available, will likely exit the workforce, and it's becoming increasingly likely that they won't be replaced. Um, Naturally, because there are fewer auditors, the IRS is conducting fewer audits, uh, and they conducted... 675,000 fewer audits in 2017 than they did in 2010, and that's a drop in the audit rate of 42%. But one of the most concerning parts of this is the fact that the IRS oversees one of the government's largest anti-poverty programs and that's the earned income tax credit Uh, and that provides cash essentially to the working poor and under pressure from republicans the irs has made a long priority of auditing people who receive that money and as the irs has shrunk those audits have begun to consume even more resources and account for 36 percent of all the audits that they did last year and this is the wild thing the recipients of earned income tax credit whose annual income is typically less than $20,000, uh, are now examined at similar rates as compared to those who make 500000 to to $1 million a year. So put differently, if you claim earned income tax credit and you make less than $20,000 a year, you are more likely to face IRS scrutiny than someone who's making 20 times as much as you. Just a couple more things. The average credit for the earned income tax credit is about $2,500. And for larger families, that amount can exceed $6,000. And so for while some people being audited is this simple inconvenience, for many families, they rely heavily on these refunds that are now indefinitely delayed as they have to provide all of this information and all of these documents that are difficult for anyone to to keep up with, but especially um, someone who is living sort of paycheck to paycheck, month to month. And the last point I want to make is that All of this is to say there's so much less auditing of people who have wealth and means, and there's more auditing of people who are in poverty. So to give people a sense of what that means, the last IRS report to assess what it calls the tax gap, uh, issued in 2016, analyzed periods from 2008 to 2010, found that taxpayers paid about 82% of the taxes that they truly owed. If the rate of compliance in 2017 was the same as that, that would translate into $667 billion in missing taxes, which is a staggering amount of money that is enough to pay for so many of the social programs that we know would make a huge difference in the lives of people living in poverty and who are working class. But I think it's really important for people to understand what's been going on and the sort of slow trickle of bureaucratic decimation, if you will, that's been happening at the IRS for for almost a decade now.
2: So, Clint, I think this is really important that you're this into the conversation because we talk so much about how this administration in particular uh, has been adopting this sort of zero tolerance, tough on crime posture towards uh, anybody who's a person of color, anybody who's low income, you know, they will not only sort of try to prosecute you for any low level offense, but they will also not allow you to access basic benefits or housing loans and all of these other things. Uh, that we know are important to, to sort of making ends meet and having a basic level of sort of dignity in life. Uh, and yet, at the same time, we're seeing through the IRS how they're essentially uh, adopting a practice of hands-off law enforcement when it comes to rich people, right? When it comes to folks who owe a lot of money in taxes, but that's not enforced, right? Those penalties aren't enforced. Uh, and are increasingly not being enforced on people who are wealthier. It's like that doesn't make any sense. Like as an organization, how you would have you know potentially billions and billions and billions of dollars of revenue uh, that you should be enforcing by law. You're supposed to be enforcing, and yet you know we're not seeing the types of tactics being employed that are employed on low-income people. You know, I'm curious to to dig a little bit deeper into this story and see, uh, you know, what are the methods uh, that are being employed. Uh, by the IRS, you know, how could they actually, in addition to the budget cuts, but how can they adopt sort of new tools and technologies and change their focus in a way uh, where they could begin actually enforcing this for folks who are making a lot of money uh, to bring in money that can actually go to people who need it.
3: So Clint, I read this story, it was fascinated by it. Again, I won't like beat a dead horse, but the administrative functions are things that we don't think about as targets, as like sites of activism, but they have to be because... It's like that's the bureaucracy that people don't even see impacting their lives. Another thing, another way the IRS is actually uh, squeezing poor people and people who have been victims of natural disasters and other things is by some private debt collectors. So there's an IRS program that's using private debt collectors at the request of two senators, Chuck Grassley and Chuck Schumer. They pushed for uh, private debt collectors to, to help out the IRS, and since April 2017, four debt collection companies have been assigned to about half a million delinquent taxpayers. They brought in a little bit less than a 1% of what Congress hopes the program will ultimately generate. Tax experts and the IRS's own oversight board has said that this is dangerous and, and not helpful. The thing, though, is that nearly half the people who paid the private debt collectors in the program's first six months were considered low income, and 19% of them had uh, incomes below the federal poverty level of $25,000, and 44% had incomes below 250% of the federal poverty level. The other thing I'll say is that the IRS also gave uh, private collectors illegal information on about 2,500 of the taxpayers, and... You know, I'm reminded of like the push towards privatization in government rarely actually achieves the results that people say that they're going to achieve. Even when you think about things like private prisons, like there's no data to suggest that private prisons have better outcomes or run better, any of that stuff. If anything, there's a lot of data to suggest uh, the opposite. But I hadn't thought about the IRS as, as doing anything more than sort of raw tax collection until uh, this story that you referenced, uh, Clint came up and then I was like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff happening at the IRS that I hadn't thought about.
5: There are obviously so many ways in which this connects to other things we've talked about on the pod when we were talking about people having access to housing loans and the valuation of their homes. When it comes to people's access to money to get their education, all of those kinds of things, um, because of course when someone is uh, under debt collection, it is ruining their credit. And as I was reading the piece that you shared, Clint, I started to do some research just on credit discrimination because. That That, of course, is illegal to use one's background to discriminate against them um, in setting whether or not they're meeting certain credit bars. But there are actually new ways on loan applications that companies are starting um, to discriminate in different ways. So one of the ways that they're doing that is they're building algorithms, to your point, Sam, around uh, people's social connections. So which social media sites they use the most, access to those, who they're connected to, because it's a way to be race blind and gender blind Etc. cetera, technically, but not actually. Um, and so I, I just wanted to continue to connect the dots between what is happening at the IRS, what happens when you go into debt, and all of the ways that this can spiral out of control for marginalized people.
3: So my news is an article called, A Guarantee of Tuition-Free College Can Have Life-Changing Effects. And what it focuses on is a study that was recently put out that is focused on the University of Michigan and the High Achieving Involved Leader or Hale scholarship. And what the scholarship does is it encourages highly qualified low income students to apply to the university and promises them four years of education free of tuition and fees. The other part of it is a way that they recruit and target students to be a part of the program. So they send personalized mailings out with all the information. The mailings cost less than $10 to produce and send out. And the students' parents and school principals are contacted separately. So they do this, like, sort of broad-reaching recruitment to not only reach out to the students— And the offer of free tuition isn't contingent on filling out the FAFSA form. So like families should fill out FAFSA, but they're going to give them free tuition either way. And what they find is that students who received the mailing were more than twice as likely to apply to the University of Michigan compared to a control group, and the percentage of low-income students enrolling at the university more than doubled, so from 13% in the control group to 28% in the group of students who received the mailer. The last thing that this article talked about that I was fascinated by was the concept of undermatching. I'd never heard of undermatching. Before. Have you heard of undermatching, which is when high-achieving students don't attend the most selective college that they could get into? And like I just had never heard of undermatching, so I'm like generally fascinated with that. But the article talks about how programs like this that guarantee tuition, especially for low-income students, actually address the undermatching issue that it's reduced when low-income students know that their mission is insured through state policy, like in Texas. So Really fascinated with that. And the thing about undermatching is that students who undermatch are less likely to graduate than four years, as well as within six years, than their peers who did not. So again, I have a lot more. I We need to get an expert on the pod on undermatching, because I'm obsessed.
5: Um, I have absolutely heard of undermatching, both in the professional spaces that I occupy, but also... Um, in a lot of the folks that I know personally, and I'm sure this is true for all of us, um, people who were qualified to attend more selective, more rigorous schools, people who applied and even got in but very simply did not receive the kind of financial packages that would allow them to attend. Um, And often, um, to your point about the likelihood of attrition if you go to a school to which you are undermatched, there are so many times when the school that is more affordable is the school that is nearby, is the commuter school, and then those additional family pressures to work, to provide money for home, um, to uh, attend to the emotional needs of your family, um, all of those things that can distract from school, especially for people who are first-generation college students, that can add to all of that stuff.
2: You know, DeRay, this study reminds me of a study in 2013 that the University of Kansas did where they found that students who had between $1, only $1, and $500 in savings for college were three times more likely to attend college and four times more likely to graduate from college than students with no savings. And these were all students with low income or middle income backgrounds. And simply having that, that $500 or less in their savings account made a significant difference in their likelihood of going to college and graduating from it. Uh, And it reminds me of, you know, the ways in which, you know, oftentimes there are some simple fixes that can be done that can make a significant impact on big issues like educational attainment and access to higher education. Uh, And, you know, DeRay, like in your article, it was a $10 mailer that they sent to the student. They called the family. They called the principal. uh, And they made a simple promise that we're going to support you financially if you come to our school. And that made a significant impact. So, you know, when we think about these big issues of like how do we close the opportunity gap? How do we ensure that folks are getting college degrees, particularly from low income backgrounds, from communities of color? And we need to look at oftentimes what's already working in, in some contexts that could be invested in and scaled up. So, for example, in San Francisco, they took that college savings example uh, and study and built a program where now every incoming kindergartner in the school district in the city is automatically given a child savings account uh, for college. Uh, and so you know that's just one example of building a system uh, that's building on the data that shows what works so that we can ultimately achieve the goal that we all want to achieve.
6: I think that we've seen different examples of this. I remember a few years ago, I think it was at University of Texas, I don't have the information in front of me, where they were piloting like a new way, a new orientation for first generation students. And after doing it a couple of times, uh, they found that it dramatically increased the retention rate uh, and matriculation rate of those students, and and sometimes it just takes these really simple things that have huge impacts for for folks who otherwise don't have access to a lot of this information. Um, and I think it's just so important. And I've been a high school teacher at a low income school, and and the whole process is just so overwhelming if you don't know. It's overwhelming for most people, but especially if you don't know anyone who's attended college before. And I think it's so important for us to to continue to think of like new and innovative ways to to get information to young people who might have no idea how to even sort of enter the process.
3: That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come.
0: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley High Performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. Work.
3: And now my conversation with Deborah Richardson, the Executive Director of International Human Trafficking Institute. Deborah, thanks so much for joining us today on Pots of the People.
4: My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. You're
3: the Executive Director of the International Human Trafficking Institute. How would you define what human trafficking is, so we have a shared understanding? And then, like, how did you get drawn to this work?
4: Sure. Human trafficking is when someone is coerced, smuggled, or led to be engaged in illegal activities such as through labor, sex, or domestic servitude without them having the full agency around the behavior. So as an example, if someone answers an ad to be a nanny in a home and they think it's a regular paying job, and they come to find out that the family wants him to stay there in the home. They can't leave on their own. They've come here from another country. They generally take their passports away. So they were led to believe that they were getting a job as a nanny, but it comes out that they are being enslaved and not able to have their free will around their behavior. And then, for instance, in terms of sex trafficking— Young people are the most vulnerable because they don't have the maturation to really understand perhaps what someone is saying to them and what someone is attempting to do to them to lure them out. Let's say you have a couple of teenage young women at a mall and someone comes up to them and says, Hey, and we're doing a music video. Love to have you in it. You know, we're doing auditions in 30 minutes. Why don't you come with me to be the audition and I'll bring you back. So the only thing that they're hearing is there is a potential being in a music video when, in fact, they are being lured away. And often and we've seen these instances where the parents don't hear from them for months on end, if at all. Wow. So those examples of how they are lured to a certain behavior that they didn't realize was actually an entrapment.
3: How did you get drawn to the work?
4: It was 20 years ago when I was the director of program development at Fulton County Juvenile Court. And my job was to identify services for young people and their families coming through the court system. And I was sitting in the back of the courtroom listening to a docket. I would listen to judges' docks a couple times a month so I can get a clearer idea of what the judges were hearing. And a 10-year-old little girl came in. She was handcuffed and shackled at the ankles. Uh, She had been in juvenile detention since Friday, and this was Monday, so that's three days, and her crime was that she had been found in the back seat of a van with a 42-year-old man who had rented her for sex for two hours. Wow. She was arrested for child prostitution and a curfew violation since she was a minor and it was after 11 p.m. Because pimping and pandering a child in the state of Georgia at that time was a misdemeanor, he was given what was equivalent to a, a traffic ticket and let go. And I was absolutely... What year was this? 1999. Wow. And I was absolutely floored, outraged. It really did sear something in my soul to realize that this was really happening in my own community. And when I talked to the judge, she shared that she's seeing 30 or 40 of those cases every month. But the law says that these were child prostitutes. Nobody ever stopped to think, can a 10-, 12-, 14-year-old consent to be a prostitute? And that's when we began to unravel the fact that there were indeed vulnerable young people who were being recruited by traffickers into sex trafficking. And that started me um, to be engaged in several movements since then.
3: What would you say are um, some of the biggest misconceptions about trafficking?
4: One is, particularly when it comes to sex, is that the young person is um, wanting to do this. They're making a choice. Uh, They're getting paid, not realizing that the young people are not getting paid, not realizing that they are being coerced and held against their will. So I went on subsequently a year later and opened the first safe house for sexually exploited girls in the southeast. And the stories we would hear from the young women was that if they would have a quota, if they didn't make the quota, they would come back. Their trafficker would beat them, um, tie them up, torture them, and also not let them eat for a couple of days to show that the trafficker was in control. And so, therefore, these girls became compliant by fear. So people don't understand the violence that, is, that goes on behind the scenes and that often traffickers use drugs so that they can make the young women compliant. Young women and young men, because we're seeing more and more young men, are doing this as a career choice, and nothing could be further from the truth.
3: Is there data about how many uh, young people or people are trafficked in a given year?
4: You know, data is very hard because this is uh, underground illegal activity. There was a report that was done a couple of years ago at the University of Pittsburgh that said there were up to 200,000 young people within the United States who was at risk. And by being at risk, that means that they are living in impoverished conditions, they have frail family relationships, they have poor school performance Um, one of the huge gateways into human trafficking is kids in the foster care system. The National Hmm. Center for Missing and Exploited Children says that 98% of the children that they rescue from trafficking come directly out of the foster care system. So that's the kind of stats we have. We don't really have one around the scale and scope. However, I will say that the Urban Institute did a study out of 14 major cities and found that Atlanta has the highest underground commercial sex industry out of those 14 cities. Uh, It's it's like a $290 million a year business and $33,000 a week is the average income of one trafficker. Think about it, $33,000 cash, dollars a week is what traffickers are making. So those stats that we do know. And when we say underground sex activities that can be pornography, strippers at a private club or at a party uh, as well as young people being lured in for sex trafficking.
3: If if the scale is so large in places like Atlanta, how are people able to get away with it? For that many people to be trafficked, like how does it still go so unimpeded?
4: Uh, I'm chuckling because you don't even know how to ask the question. You're right. I know. I'm like, <laughs> I'm
3: like, I don't understand. Yeah, I
4: agree. It's confounding. Okay, but let's look at it from this perspective. Let's look at trafficking as using a business model. Okay, A trafficker is a business person who is seizing an economic opportunity to make money from a buyer. And because they are buyers who are willing to purchase sex, with trafficked persons, particularly young girls and young boys, the trafficker is motivated to recruit and coerce young people to meet the demand of the buyer. And so a lot of times our emphasis is on how come law enforcement isn't identifying and rescuing girls? How come they aren't arresting the traffickers? Well, the issue is, where are these me- why aren't we focusing on the men who are driving the industry? I'll give you another stat. There was an organization in Atlanta called Youth Spark, and they did what they called the Georgia Demand Study. And what they found that 12,400 men per month was going online to purchase sex. And out of that 12,400 men, 58% of their transactions was specifically for a young person. So hmm. that's what's driving it the customer. And so until we shine a light on the customer, the trafficker is just responding to a business opportunity.
3: Do we know anything about the, the sort of demographics of who the
4: traffickers are? Mm, not really. It's, you know, they're all races, ethnicities. We are finding that there are more traffickers who are women than they were really 10, mm-hmm, ten years ago. So just think about it. If you have a 14-, 15-year-old daughter and her new friend uh, shows up at her house, she's a high school senior, you know, you won't think anything about, hey, can we go to down the street and get some ice cream cone? You know, so therefore traffickers have learned if they put the women out there as the front, they get better success. And we've even seen instances where there are young people in the high school who are students who are being recruited by the trafficker to recruit students out of the school.
3: And that is sort of blowing my mind. I, 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 I hadn't even thought about women traffickers.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. But it, again, it shows you, because this is such a lucrative underground business, that the traffickers would do all that they need to do to make sure that they're protecting the supply in order to meet the demand of the buyer. What can people do to stop trafficking? Well, what people can do to stop trafficking, and this is what we're doing now in Atlanta, we're talking to businesses to make anti-trafficking activities under a a viable offense in your human resource policies, to make anti-trafficking stipulations in your vendor contracts. Because what we're seeing is that there's a convention in Atlanta People are coming in as you know, to represent their companies. Uh, they're getting online before they leave their home city so that when they get to the hotel there's a girl that's being delivered to them. They're paying the trafficker using the company credit card. They're going online. Really? At- Yes, because it's considered entertainment. And they're entertaining clients by setting up, you know, the, getting an Airbnb, for instance, and setting up a party for their clients. They're entertaining wow. clients, and they're using company credit cards. There was a, a study done a few years ago where we set up a fake website, and men were, um, hey, if you're coming to Atlanta, you want to have a good time, etc. And the peak activity for that website was Thursday and Fridays from 2 to 5 p.m. So these people were at work They were you know if it had been Saturday or Sunday we could say oh maybe they were at home and they were bored no they were at work setting up their evening uh, and weekend entertainment. There was a sting and a sheriff in Florida uh, did. Last Halloween, it was called Trick But No Treats, where they set up a website and lured men to a hotel because they thought they had purchased sex. One of the men was on his honeymoon. One was a pediatrician. One was a surgeon who actually showed up in his scrubs. He didn't even take time to change clothes. So you have a whole whole range of men who do this illegal activity because they know they can do it with almost complete anonymity. What are the sites people are using? Was it um, was it Craigslist? Was that like the number one? Mm-hmm. Yep, it was. And I uh, was the convener of the coalition that did the campaign to have Craigslist shut down, testified before Congress, and so we got it shut down. And then Backpage, was the second highest, um, they became the, the largest site, And finally, after six years of efforts, uh, Congress shut down Backpage last spring. And so what we are finding now is that the websites are moving offshore. And so since they aren't originating in the United States, Congress doesn't have the control anymore around sites. So again, because there's a lot of money, there are a lot of people going online, uh, swiping that credit card, making that transaction. So it's lucrative. What are the tips that people can use to spot trafficking? Okay, great. That's a great question. And I'm going to give a lot of this for parents and people who work with children. Generally, with a young person, they will begin to have a different set of friends, miss a lot of school, or they'll be sleeping in school. They will have possessions that they didn't have uh, before, and if they're out, um, they'll generally be with someone who looks older than they are. They won't engage you in a conversation, or if they do, it would be a script. So those are the kinds of signs. So if you have an ongoing relationship with a young person, you will notice the shifts. And so for you to begin to realize that that shift really could be because they are being exploited. But if you're out, more often than not, it would be because the person's actions are being controlled. They are not able to move about freely or, you know, like in a restaurant, if they get up to go to the restroom, somebody goes with them, you know, that kind of thing.
3: If you could train one industry to spot trafficking, like what would be that
4: industry? Transportation. I'm currently training the Lyft drivers in Atlanta. And my very first training, I was five minutes into the training when somebody raised their hand. And the driver said, I picked up two young women from a six-star hotel in Atlanta at 6.30 this morning and dropped them off at a high school. Was that trafficking? So those people who are out there in transportation, seeing people come and go, they see it, but they don't know what they're looking at. Hotels generally have adopted um, training their um, employees to recognize human trafficking however um we also know that how trafficking shows up in a hotel a lot is through labor trafficking and that's the, the cleaning staff most cleaning staff now from hotels are contract workers so and so the hotel hires a contractor to provide their labor and that contractor is using trafficked persons and that's why we're asking groups to put anti-trafficking stipulations in their vendor contracts. They may not do it, be doing it explicitly, but because of the contractors they're using. But the larger number of people who are trafficked is actually for labor.
3: Now, Atlanta's hosting the 2019 Super Bowl. I imagine that that is a hotbed for trafficking, that, that event. Is there anything that you can do to prepare?
4: Oh, absolutely. But let me Take away the myth. Um, There's a lot of hyperbole saying that uh, the Super Bowl is the largest human trafficking event in the world. And that is not the case. There's no quantifiable data around that. What we do know is when you have large groups of buyers, primarily men, who have disposable income, you're going to have human trafficking. So Atlanta, with this robust convention business, uh, with the world's largest airport, is a feeder for human trafficking 365 days a year. So the Super Bowl, yes, there will indeed be trafficking, um, but it will have proportion to the number of people the same amount of trafficking as, say, any major convention that comes to the city. So to answer your second question, uh, we are training the Super Bowl host volunteers. I just came from our second training. We're going to be conducting 20 different training sessions for the 10,000 Super Bowl volunteers so that they can learn about the signs, so when they see it, they can report it. So our mantra is learn something, see something, do something.
3: What do we do with the laws or policies to make sure that, like, the young people being trafficked aren't the people who are, like, getting jail sentences, but that the, the people trafficking are the people who are being held accountable?
4: It's a federal law that makes human trafficking illegal. And so the laws are on the books. So what we have to do is enforce the law. The same law is on the book that says if you are a customer who participates in a commercial sex act with anyone 18 and under, you are also guilty of human trafficking. And it's the buyer that we always let off the hook. If the 65,000 people come into the Super Bowl, if we didn't, if they were not the 10, 15 percent of people there who were going to buy sex, then you would not have a business for the trafficker. So as long as we focus on the middleman and not on the source of the business, you're going to always have trafficking.
3: You said that your initial work in this was around safe houses. Are there enough safe houses for young people? And are safe houses like transition houses so that you sort of rescue them from the trafficking space and then you help them readjust to go back to the home that they were in before or like to go back into a larger society? Like, how does that work?
4: When we were working on getting the last trafficking bill passed by Congress, so we helped to close the loophole sorta, around the fact that there are too few places for a trafficked person to go for rehabilitation. In the testimony, one of the supporting congressmen said there are more shelters for animals in this country than there are for trafficked children. And so they are not enough. So we definitely need to have more services. But I will tell you, in opening that safe house, one of the things I absolutely saw is no amount of counseling, education, care, teddy bears can repair that child to what she was before she was trafficked. So as a society, if we allow a young person to be lured into trafficking to meet the demand of a buyer, shame on us. I want us to redirect our emphasis. We should not allow children to be trafficked in the first place. And so for us to say, okay, we're going to open up more safe homes, that's, we're being complicit in allowing that to happen to our children. If we eliminate the demand by holding buyers accountable, if a buyer knew if they went online to order sex from a child that they would lose their job, that's a huge deterrent. Huge. If they will be registered as a sex offender, that's a huge deterrent. And that is what we're not doing.
3: And if somebody hears this episode and wants to get trained or wants to like volunteer or be helpful, like what do you say to them?
4: Uh, we would love for them to go to our website, Human Trafficking Proof atl dot org. They can sign up to volunteer. They tell us if they're in another state, uh, we have connections with organizations throughout the United States that we can refer them to. So you could consider us the one-stop shop for anyone who wants to get engaged and volunteer. We're also doing trainings for employers for them to understand how it can impact their business and giving them policies that they can implement. And, of course, we're doing training for transportation workers, hotel workers, anyone who is out there in the general public so that they learn to see something, they know what to do. There are a lot of people
3: who have protested, who have been to the marches, been to the rallies, who've run for office, who've called, who emailed, and the outcomes haven't changed in a way that they wanted it to. What do you say to those people who are losing hope in moments like this?
4: Uh, I think you're, you're absolutely right, because we believe that a march is the gateway to a solution, and it really isn't. What we need to understand, and the American Civil Rights Movement taught us this— the March in Washington happened after almost 10 years of organizing education of people in the community about the wrongs of having apartheid in this United States. And because of creating a public will around this is wrong, so when you get to the march, you already have the momentum. But if you start at the march, you're not doing the groundwork that's necessary. So people being trained to understand it, people requiring that their company have these stipulations, people having conversations with men and young boys, because the behavior starts when they are young, of that women's bodies are commodities. All of that has to take place before we can really see an end to human trafficking or any social condition.
3: And is there a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that you that stuck with you?
4: Oh yes, uh, and that is parents, please talk to your children. Parents don't feel comfortable talking about human trafficking, but I promise you, your children—you'll be surprised at what they know. I have gone into middle schools, and those young people have told me about a classmate or someone they know who has an older boyfriend. That's—they always call it a boyfriend or you know a good friend. So young people, because of their vulnerability of age and their maturity rate, they are targets. And so you have to talk to young people about it in advance. And if your child has a computer, you know, put it on the dining room table, So a laptop, so you know who they're corresponding with. Every week almost there's something in the paper about some young person who's been online, think they're talking to another teenager, they go to meet the teenager and it's an older person. It happens continuously. And so we have to take the responsibility of protecting our own children from this. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to spread this word because it impacts us more than we think.
3: Boom, I learned so much. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Podsy the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.
0: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life.